If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be continuing our series in Mark's gospel with verse 53 through 65. Of course, next Sunday, I will be preaching in uh, Birmingham on the 19th, so you can pray for that. Um, It'll be 4 p.m., so I think subtract seven hours. Right around the time we're worshiping, you can be praying for that. Um, and then um, the following Sunday, I'll be jet-lagged, so Brother Wayne's going to be preaching on uh, the 26th. So uh, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning from Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Father, we have heard from your word already this morning. I pray that you would add unto it the work of your Holy Spirit. Would you tune our hearts to what you would say this morning as we examine this text and see Jesus on trial with all the hosts of the uh, Sanhedrin conspiring against Jesus, his courage, his truthfulness, his witness, Lord, would you move in our hearts to see and to savor our Savior, Jesus Christ? And would you move our hearts to action, not leaving here the same as we come? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One could argue that today's text includes a part of the climax of Mark's gospel, that things have been working up in tension to this point, this climactic moment before the Sanhedrin where Jesus is on trial. This morning, I want you to consider with me the tension that is dripping from the scene. Because if you haven't been here for all of the messages on Mark's gospel, you may not know that this collision has been 
coming for a while. Uh, the backstory of conflict between Jesus and the authorities has been growing. And this assembly of all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes at the high priest's house is the climax point of that opposition to the claims that Jesus made of his own authority. So I'd like to put it like this for your outline this morning, if you're following along. Jesus' authoritative claims and opposition to those claims led to this climactic conflict at Caiaphas's house. With my trusty pen and pen, uh, pen and pad of paper, I was trying to recall a few of those authoritative claims in Mark's gospel that come to mind. Now, before Jesus even makes a claim in this gospel, we are tipped off by the author of the gospel. So the very first verse of this gospel says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark tips us, tips his hand to the identity of who Jesus is from the very outset. The reader knows who Jesus is. And then it's confirmed with the first uh, pericope, the first few paragraphs of the text where we see John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and the Spirit descends on Jesus and God the Father says, this is my son. So we, we know who Jesus is from the start as the reader, as the one who's following along in the gospel. But then Jesus begins to do some things that make authoritative claims as to who he is in public. So for example, we see Jesus teaching with authority. We see Jesus casting out demons. Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive sins and demonstrates that, that authority with a miraculous sign. Jesus interprets the law in ways that put the Pharisees to shame. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He calms the seas, claiming authority over nature and disease and sin and death. And the opposition parties in the surrounding region of Galilee, where the first section of Mark begins, begin to take issue. They notice Jesus and these claims, and they've wanted him dead since Mark chapter 3. That's why I'm saying this, this tension has been building. So if you look at, for example, Mark 3 and 6, what you have is a strange bedfellows, a political alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. We read the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. They usually didn't get along, but they got along about this. How can we destroy Jesus? Well, all of that was kind of okay for the Jerusalem elites, so long as it was up in Galilee, as long as things were taking place outside of the hub of Jewish religion. Jesus then making his way into Jerusalem is careful to keep his messianic identity under wraps as much as possible. It was given the name as you study the, the gospel of Mark. We've kind of talked about this thing called the messianic secret. What is all that about? It's that Jesus is unfolding and slowly identifying himself as the Messiah before the masses. He's not coming outright at the very outset of his ministry in Jerusalem being in public. So for example, Jesus takes the three disciples up the mountain and he's transfigured before them. And when they come down the mountain, they've seen Jesus for who he really is. But he says, don't tell anybody until after I've been raised from the dead. And that's because Jesus is trying to keep the timing of this inevitable collision course with the Jewish authorities on track. 
It'll all happen around the Passover feast, and it'll all lead to the cross of Calvary. So he kept from saying things overtly, but he continued to heap up the disapproval of the religious authorities, not only in Galilee, but also in Jerusalem. It was quite enough for there to be a stir in Galilee, but as Jesus enters in in Mark chapter 9 and begins the triumphal entry, right? And we see him coming into Jerusalem. This was the point of that whole message. Tell me you're the Messiah without telling me you're the Messiah. Jesus is making some implicit claims about who he is by riding in on a donkey, by receiving the praises of the loud Hosanna to the son of David and walking into the temple like he owns the place because he does. Do you remember that message about Jesus making those implicit claims, but not overtly calling himself the Messiah in public? He receives the praise, but he's careful. He's working this all up to this point. Further, in chapter 12, he tells the parable of the vineyard owner. That wasn't making any friends with the religious authorities, where he says that the, you know, the owner of the vineyard sends a the servants, and then eventually he sends the son, and they kill the son, and they, they're picking up what he's putting down. And word must have been getting around about Jesus' all of that discourse, too, because word about destroying the temple is on the lips of these false witnesses as well. So thanks to Judas, they find this opportune time to capture Jesus and set up a kangaroo court in Caiaphas's house. Now, I call it a kangaroo court because if you look in verse 55, you can see that they had the verdict. They just needed the testimony, the charge, and the evidence. They knew what they wanted from the outset. They wanted Jesus dead. But in reality, nothing about the trial before the Sanhedrin resembled the way the Jewish Sanhedrin would typically operate. R.C. Sproul summarizes it well when he notes that it's only in this recorded instance of a Jewish trial where it's conducted at night, which would have been considered illegal. Clearly, the Sanhedrin didn't want the public to know what was going on with their trial of Jesus, lest the masses march in protest. Jewish law also prescribed that no trial could be held on a Sabbath, a feast day, or the eve of the Sabbath, or a feast day. So that regulation is being violated as well, considering the timing of when this trial is taking place. And the unfolding of the trial was also irregular. Old Testament law required that capital crimes have two eyewitnesses, and those two eyewitnesses had to agree in their testimony. But as we read this morning, they couldn't even trump up two eyewitness testimonies, so-called eyewitness testimonies, to agree. They don't match. And then further... The Jewish custom would have been, if you're going to try a man for a capital crime, like you're going to sentence him to death, you sleep on it. You go to bed that night, and you come back the next day and pronounce the final judgment. So nearly everything about this hearing is going against Jewish custom. But the conflict with Jesus meant throwing out the rule book, because his claims to authority— and their fear of what might happen to their own authority were on this inevitable collision course. The Sanhedrin was basically convening to say to Jesus like they used to say in the old westerns, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. So after 
an embarrassing round of false witnesses and convoluted stories, the high priest has finally had enough. He's probably exasperated by what must have seemed to him like contemptuous silence by Jesus. And he stands up and he gets right to the nub of things. He says, point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Now, the high priest used that phrase, son of the blessed one, because he himself didn't want to be convicted of blasphemy. You wouldn't say God's name in Jewish custom. And so the son of the blessed one is a euphemism or another way of saying, are you the son of God? Now I have to caveat that by saying, I don't think he meant son of God like we think son of God, like second person of the Trinity incarnate, you know, Jesus coming in flesh and that son of God. More like Old Testament Psalm 2, son of God. Like where God sets up his Messiah on the holy hill in Jerusalem and says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nation church. Like, so are you that guy? Are you the Messiah? That's what he's asking Jesus. Point blank. Are you the Messiah? Answer me. He's, he's trying to draw Jesus out into the open. All these implied claims is finally coming down to this Rubicon. There's this no turning back moment where Jesus is asked and he has to answer. And so I would argue, as we're looking at the outline again this morning, Jesus' answer to the high priest's question is this climactic, no turning back point of no return moment for Jesus. And what does he do? He replies in the affirmative. He knew there was no turning back. He absolutely knew it. And he answers anyway. And I just want you to marvel with me today at how Jesus' straightforward response to this question, first of all, concurs with all his prior claims. Jesus' response to this high priest question concurs with all his prior claims. In two words, Jesus imports all of those authoritative claims that I've just been talking about from the rest of the gospel. Like how many of you um, work with databases? Any of you work with databases? Like, we have a small database, you know, a few hundred, you know, hundreds of records kind of a thing. We've been trying to transfer, you know, from Faith Life over to Planning Center. And, you know, some of you work with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of records maybe in your database. And it's that, you know, queasiness in your stomach when you're about to click import and overwrite, right? Like, this is the no turning back moment. Ah, you know, you can barely press the button. That's where Jesus is. That's where he is because this one question and that one simple answer brings with it all that he's said and done. It concurs with all of his prior claims. Jesus does so with a simple affirmative, I am. Now some people see, and I think this is fair to, to speculate, uh, maybe a connection to Exodus chapter 3 with the revelation of God and his name and the burning bush to Moses, you know, I am. Is Jesus kind of doing that? Maybe, but I will just argue it's also possible he was answering the question, are you, with the only words that make sense in the English language, I am, right? He's just answering the question. Are you the Messiah? I am. Furthermore, 
Jesus' answer in those two simple words to the high priest's question conforms with reality. It conforms with reality. I started thinking about this, and it made my head hurt a little bit. Because logically, you know, like, again, some of you work with logic and programming and things like that. I suppose logically, you might be able to suggest that theoretically possible that Jesus could have said no. Or he could have stayed silent, like if we're just running down the list of options here. But Scripture makes it clear this is simply impossible. Frankly, if Jesus had lied about his— if he had said no, the universe would have imploded. Like, God cannot deny himself. And so, in answering in the affirmative, he conforms, he conforms to reality with a capital R. Are you the blessed? Are you the son of the blessed one? I am. He is the one that would come. If he had said no, it would have abandoned the predestined plan for the son to obey the father, to redeem his bride. All of that would have been aborted. So I abandoned my conjecture about all these possibilities just as soon as it began. Because the reality is Jesus Christ could not possibly have answered any other way than he did. It conforms to the reality of the universe. It was the plan all along. This is why he had shrouded his identity and then why he had gone into Jerusalem and stirred up the hornet's nest, why he had gone along and allowed himself to be arrested in the garden instead of calling down the tens of thousands of angels that he could have to stand before the high priest in the Sanhedrin face to face and answer in the affirmative knowing what it would mean, knowing what would happen. Because in the same breath, he's confronting the Sanhedrin. He's calling them out. In, in the same breath as he answers, I am, he says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and great authority, basically. So in the same answer, Jesus confronts the Sanhedrin with promised judgment. This is a good way to get yourself killed. The essence of what Jesus means when he says to them, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, this statement has been uh, interpreted in two ways. And commentator Mark Strauss, we actually have his commentary. If you're ever looking for a good commentary, it's the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the New Testament. We have it in our library. And what he writes is so concise and to the point that I think it summarizes the options for what Jesus meant when he said this phrase. It's a very contested phrase, but there's only two basic arguments, two sides. Okay, so here, here we go. Both the phrase, the Son of Man, and the phrase, coming on the clouds of heaven, come from Daniel chapter 7. If you were here for the Olivet Discourse, you're you're going to have flashbacks, okay? This is going to sound a little familiar. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, uh, the, Daniel writes, one like the Son of Man, meaning having, having a human form, comes on the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days, meaning God himself. And this Son of Man is given glory, and he's given dominion, and he's given an everlasting kingdom. Now, Jesus has used this phrase about himself the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in Mark 8 and in Mark chapter 13. That's why when I said if you were here for the Olivet Discourse, this might still sound familiar. So 
what Mark Strauss says is that while this text also points to Jesus's vindication, meaning his vindication of coming before the Father and receiving a kingdom, it's debated whether it refers to only the exaltation of Jesus, like after he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and receives the kingdom. Is that the only thing he's talking about? Or is it referring to the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age when he comes on the clouds to judge the living and the dead? Now, in favor of the former, the seating at the right hand of the Father, is the context of Daniel chapter 7, which refers to a a heavenly sort of vindication where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom. Yet, as we studied earlier in Mark chapter 13, Mark uses the same text with reference to the second coming, when Jesus comes again. And I think that's his intention here as well. Similar to how Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 refers to every eye seeing Jesus when he comes again. So Jesus's immediate vindication will undoubtedly come when he ascends to the right hand of God. However, his ultimate vindication will occur when he comes in glory to judge and to save. At that time, those who are presently standing in judgment, the Sanhedrin, will see and will be judged by the Son of Man. So it seems like it may be quibbling a little bit, like okay, we feel like we're in the weeds a little bit of what this means. I just want to remind you that to be fair to those who think the seeing of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, referring to an, an immediate vindication, is that Jesus is actually talking to the Sanhedrin. And he says, you will see. So I think we have to give some credit to the, the theory, at least, that this refers to Jesus receiving the kingdom, ascending to the Father, and sitting at the right hand of God, receiving a kingdom of glory and power and dominion. And what they will see is Jesus was right. The temple will be destroyed, and Jesus was who he claimed to be. In their lifetime, they will see that happen. But with that being said, I also agree with the conclusion that there is a sense in which, yes, of course, the Sanhedrin will recognize they got it all wrong. They missed it. Jesus was right. But his predictions of him coming again will also come true, and they will see his vindication in the future as we see it together when every eye sees Jesus come again. So the Sanhedrin plays a representative role for what every eye will see when Jesus comes back in his glory. Like Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And catch it, it's actually the both and is right here in this verse. Every eye will see him who also, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What did I just say? If you lost me like two and a half minutes ago, listen up again. Here's the succinct way of saying exactly what I just said in the paragraph. Why didn't you say it that way before? Because some people want to know the details. I'm giving you the summary. Okay, you ready for it? Jesus is essentially saying to those who are trying him, today I am standing before you on trial, but there is coming a day when you will stand before me and I will judge you. 
a great reversal is going to take place. You're judging me now, but I will judge you. That's the point of that phrase. At the end of the day, whether it's immediately, when he comes again, or both, that's what Jesus is saying. And hear me, the message came through loud and clear because it absolutely infuriated the high priest. He tore his robes. In the eyes of Caiaphas, Jesus was a deluded and outrageously presumptuous man to claim as a mere human to have this close of a relationship with God. And furthermore, the assertion that he will sit in judgment over the Sanhedrin and the implication based on the context of the passages Jesus was quoting in Daniel 7 means the people judging him are his enemies. He's calling them enemies of God. D.A. Carson notes that this last point where Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming, the clouds of glory, was uh, basically cursing a leader of God's people. He was saying, you're an enemy of God. You will be judged by God. And in doing so, he was committing the equivalent of blasphemy by by cursing, essentially, God's anointed priest and claiming judgment over him, that's why the high priest tears his robes and says, you've all heard it. He's uttering blasphemy. Why? Because he's making claims that he's going to judge me and you all. And we're close to God. And Jesus is saying, "Uh, -uh. you're so far from God, you will be judged by him when I come again. And that's the blasphemy that He's saying that Jesus is committing. So in this way, when Jesus answers the high priest's question, it confirms his certain death. It confirms Jesus' certain death. Jewish law called for those who blaspheme to be stoned. Of course, the authority of the Jewish Sanhedrin had been essentially neutered by the Roman occupation. So they're going to have to emphasize this whole thing like Jesus is some sort of political rebel to get him crucified with, you know, the, the insurrectionists, basically, to try and put him to death. But the line was crossed, and the Jewish authorities, they would stir up the crowds to make sure from this point that Jesus was condemned to crucifixion. So I would just say there's really only one explanation for why Jesus would be so coy so reserved throughout his ministry. And now, when the stakes are so high, before the one who could pronounce his death, basically, he's wide open, and he just says, yeah, that's who I am. And I would just say it's because Jesus was in complete control. Jesus was in total control. We, we read a passage at the end of last week's message from John chapter 10, in which Jesus says, in verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down, here it is, on my own initiative. Jesus is in control here. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Jesus' authoritative claims even included when and how 
he would be tried. Remember he predicted it to his disciples? When, how he'd be tried, how he'd be crucified, and that he would rise again? Jesus saw, through, saw to it that the God-ordained outcome would come to pass through a simple acknowledgement of his identity before the Jewish Sanhedrin. But even in guaranteeing his own execution, hear me, he simultaneously accomplishes our great salvation. Praise God that he didn't shrink back and that he was a faithful witness, as John the Revelator calls him. When he was put on trial, he could have lied, but instead, in telling the truth, he got himself crucified, just like he planned to, so that he could lay down his life for sinners like you and like me. He didn't waver under the threat of what would come. He knew the ultimate outcome would be vindication. He says so. You're going to see it. Just wait. I'll be on the right side of history, Jesus claims. He knew the joy that was set before him. So when he's asked, are you the Messiah? He answers with a confident, hopeful, and sacrificial love for you. And for me, yes, I am. But as we close, I want you to see one more effect that Jesus' answer to the high priest had. Jesus' answer contrasts with Peter's denial. It's a contrast with Peter's denial. I won't spend much time here because I know Brother David already preached about the denial of Peter. But Mark has made another sandwich Mark likes to do this, and he's made another sandwich where you have Peter in the courtyard, then Jesus on trial, and then the scene shifts back to Peter in the courtyard, going through his trial of sorts. One commentator says, while Jesus faithfully testifies that he is the Messiah and suffers condemnation and beating, Peter denies he even knows Jesus, and he escapes punishment but he suffers shame and humiliation. Jesus represents a model disciple who will ultimately gain true life by losing his physical life, while Peter risks losing his soul while protecting his physical life. There's a contrast being painted here. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' answer to the high priest was much more than an example. I just want to make that very clear. Jesus When he died, he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But Jesus' answer to the high priest was not less than an example for us and and those who follow after him. I do think Mark wants us to see the contrast between Jesus' faithful, self-denying witness and Peter's self-preserving denial. Mark wrote, to encourage Christians who were being persecuted by Roman authorities. And he wanted to encourage the readers of the gospel to live out their faith boldly in a hostile culture. Sounds relevant to 2023. So how could the disciple who was reading Mark's gospel then and now do that? By following Jesus' example. Be who you say you are. Be truthful that you are a follower of Jesus. Because hear me, Jesus' authoritative claims and opposition to those claims 
still collide today. Jesus' claims and opposition to those claims are still colliding. And it's by nature of your profession of faith. I'm talking to the Christians here today. By nature of your profession of faith and your obedience to this command to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are telling the world you believe Jesus is who he says he is, and you accept his rightful claims of authority on your life. You agree with his claims, for example, that we are sinners. You agree with Jesus' claims that the Bible is the word of God. Jesus said so, and you agree with that. You agree with Jesus' claim that he is the cornerstone of a new and living temple. You agree with Jesus' claim that those who love him will keep his commandments. When you're a baptized believer, you agree with Christ's claim that he is king. You agree with his claim that he is Lord. You agree with his claim that he has the power to deliver from death to everlasting life. And you agree with his authoritative claim that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The thing about it is, the world is still hostile to Jesus' claims. Right now, the prevailing winds of culture no longer see Jesus as a threat, let's say, to the previously instituted monotheistic religions. So it's not like, you know, Jesus is being uh, conflict in confliction with other monotheistic religions. The problem is not with religious things. It's when your religion starts to tell other people that his claims have claims on them. If you practice your religion privately, a-okay. Go be a good, you know, Christian. Go be a good Jewish person. You know, even good, you know. You just stay, stay religious in your home. Stay religious at your church. But if you claim all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and he has claims on your life, dear neighbor, on your life, dear friend, then all of a sudden the collision course in today's culture is it flies in the face of the modern self and autonomy. The moment your faith in Jesus makes any claim of authority on a person's agency and their self-claimed authority to do whatever they seem right in their own eyes, your commitment to Jesus and their commitment to their own autonomy collide. It seems likely to me that one day the question will come for you and me. Are you a Christian? Are you who you say you are? You've been a little coy about it in the past, but I'm putting it on the line now. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And telling the truth, I pray it is never so, may end up getting you killed or at least crucified in the court of public opinion. But hear me, when Jesus answered the Sanhedrin, he made sure to put them on notice, didn't he? As he answered, he said, yes, I am. But you will see. You'll see. I'll be on the right side of history. You hear that phrase thrown around a lot these days? Y'all need to get on the right side of history. Praise God, we already are on the right side of history when we follow Jesus Christ. Jesus told his followers, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Jesus, they will persecute us too. Oh yes, of course, 
we know Peter got it wrong at first. Mark helps us see that clearly. But in the end, Peter got it right. And he testified of his love of the Lord Jesus Christ right up to his eventual martyrdom. But before Peter was martyred, he left us with a letter, with advice on how we should posture ourselves. How should we live in light of this collision between Jesus' claims and the world's claims in these last days? Peter writes in Second Peter, scoffers will say, where is he? Where is the one who promised to, do you catch the phrase, come on the clouds? Peter tells his readers, don't forget this one thing. The Lord is patient, wanting all to come to repentance while he delays. But the day of the Lord will come, and he says it will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. And then he tells us this. Here's the advice. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. So dear saint, as I close today, let me encourage you, no matter how much the culture may collide with the claims of Christianity, I pray that your holy conduct and your godly living will put to shame those who, as Peter says in another letter, revile your good behavior in Christ. And in this way, your testimony will ring true. You are who you claim to be. And may all praise be to the one who laid claim on us as he was and testified to be who he claimed to be.